This is an ABC podcast. Saul Griffith is here today. Saul is an Australian engineer and inventor. He studied in Australia. He won a scholarship to MIT Media Lab in the United States. And in America, he founded a research and development company called Other Lab. And he led research projects for NASA, for the American National Sciences Foundation, and even for US Special Operations Command. More recently, Saul's advised the Biden administration on its gigantic package of climate initiatives. A few years ago, Saul returned to Australia with his family and he settled near Wollongong. And looking around, he saw huge potential in his local beachside community. And so he set up a group called Electrify 2515, named after its postcode. Its goal is to electrify all the household machines from cars to cooktops in the area and run them on Australian-made solar power. The benefits, Saul says, are not just ecological, but financial as well. And in the long run, they offer Australia energy independence. In 2021, Saul went on a book tour, driving all over Australia with his mum in an EV. And they saw all kinds of local initiatives right across the country, firing up around regional Australia, which has left him excited and optimistic. Saul has written the latest quarterly essay, and it's called The Wires That Bind. Hello, Saul. Welcome to you, sir. G'day, Richard. When you released your book, your earlier book called The Big Switch, you went on this book tour around Australia in this EV, and you brought your mum, which is nice. That's nice, Saul. Why, why, <laughs> why, why your mum? Why, why did you want to do that? I had spent the good measure of my adult life living in the US or living abroad, and I felt like I owed my mother a lot of time. She's, in a, she's a spectacular conversationalist and very interesting woman. And she was excited to spend some time with me, so we decided that you know, locking ourselves in a small car for hundreds of hours of driving uh, would be a good idea, and we caught up over what I'd been doing for 20 years. She's actually a pleasure to spend time with and drive with. Seems like your parents gave you that kind of lovely mix of art and science when you were growing up. What do you think it was about your childhood that was distinctive, about the way your parents raised you? I think they were largely laissez-faire parents, so there weren't a huge number of rules and rather there was just a very creative environment. The joke that's mostly true is that half of the house that I grew up in was my mother's studio and the other half was my dad's workshop and there was sort of a couple of bedrooms and a kitchen arrayed around that. So, you know, you, you, the, the only rude word in our house was, I'm bored. Uh, you could swear and get far less repercussion than I'm than saying I'm bored. So that was the outrage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that was the swearing was the response if you said I'm bored. Um, and so you know it was it was actually very lovely. And my mother's topic of much of her artwork was Australian flora and fauna. So we sort of grew up in this environment appreciating Australia's land and Australia's animals. You say your mum actually painted the Waratah that's on. The New South Wales driver's licence, is that right? <laughs> that is true. I was once pulled over in California, Northern California by a policeman and he asked me for my licence and I handed him my licence and I said, oh, my mum drew that. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a very odd look and, and then searched the car three times. Um, but, yeah, she, I can't remember one, must have been 15 or 20 years ago, she painted that and that became the Waratah that, uh, you know, she likes to, she always believed in the democratising power of art and so she likes saying that, you know, my artwork is in everyone's wallet. Machines always have a bit of a mystique for me and they're a bit terrifying. How did you lose that mystique that machines have? Were you pulling them apart and putting them back together again as a kid? Um, 
more building than, although we, we had a feel of this. My father is an engineer um, and my mother's art was actually quite technical. She was a printmaker. So we had multiple, multiple ton uh, printmaking machines inside our house, including a, an itching press that my father had lovingly hand built her. And so I remember helping him build the second lovingly hand built five ton printing press <laughs> from, from my mum. How about cars though? Can you pull apart a car? Pulling apart cars was expected. My father had an unfortunate fancy for used Jaguars, um, which necessitates pulling apart cars, um, swearing it and wiring harnesses. So we learned how to, to, to build cars. I, my first car I actually got when I was 15 and I avoided studying a lot for the HSC by rebuilding it for some ungodly reason, a 1974 Honda Civic. <laughs> so you graduated from Sydney Uni and went to MIT in the United States, like I said, founded this research and innovation company called Other Lab. What kind of things were you creating in Other Lab? So in Other Lab's product was successfully doing research that led to creating a company that would be commercialising something. And we worked in a lot of fields, most of them in energy, so we created a couple of different wind energy technologies, um, a couple of different solar energy technologies. Uh, we worked on a technology that became a storage system for hydrogen and we worked on uh, heating and cooling systems or what's known as HVAC or heat pumps uh, and as well as that sort of a sideline in robotics. So we built some industrial robots, uh, we built some speculative robots and even some exoskeletons for uh, medical devices and enhancing human performance. Do you get a pleasure out of elegance in design? Is that the overlap between the arts and sciences? I love things that are as simple as can be or only as complicated as is necessary to get the job done. Um, I do worry that in the modern world we're, we're putting computers into everything as a substitute for just elegant design. 2016, the US Department of Energy, this is the last year of the Obama administration, the US Department of Energy funded your group to, quote, map the energy flow of the US economy. Is that as bigger task as it sounds? So the project actually started in 2008. The Obama administration came in and had ambitious goals for climate and actually uh, created something called ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy, Dash Energy. And that was a, an agency within the Department of Energy that was meant to do really far out speculative work. And I had long had an interest in energy flows and if you were going to decarbonise the economy, how do you need to understand these to do a good job of decarbonising? So we proposed to the DOE in 2008 that the first thing you should do is do a deep dive into all of the energy flows and then you would know what research projects you should run to decarbonise. And what does that mean, looking at the map? So you start with where does the energy come from, what they call primary energy, so that's tonnes of coal and cubic metres of natural gas and kilowatt hours of electricity and then you watch how some of that coal energy is lost as heat and how that escapes as waste and how some of that coal energy goes into electricity, how that electricity goes into things like homes and businesses. The study we did it gives you quite an extraordinary look just to give you some sort of headlines, you know, unearthing that 7% of the energy that America thought it used was actually an accounting error born of a legislative mistake in the 70s as to how you define primary energy for hydroelectricity. 0.9% of US energy flow is using natural gas to pump natural gas through 1.3 million miles of pipeline. 0.2% of US energy flow is used in abattoirs, slaughterhouses. 0.6% is used in school buses. Like you, you, you could get this extraordinarily detailed view 
which is useful because all the things that humans want to do are at the far end of that diagram, like the the end uses. And what you want to do is figure out how do we do all the things that humans like doing but without producing the carbon dioxide. So this map was really the way to look at that. And when you stand back and look at that map from 30,000 feet, what are the broad conclusions you drew from that? The broad conclusions is nearly every emission that is of carbon dioxide that's coming out of that really can only be eliminated through electrification of some description and providing that electricity with renewables and with, um, in the US, nuclear power. So the larger message is quite complicated. You've got to talk about how all these things interact in a very complex way. But if you want to boil it down... Electrify everything. Electrify everything. That's, that's, that's simply it. And electrify it with renewable energy. Yeah, and, you know, after the IPCC report that said this is our very, very, very last chance to have a shot at one and a half degrees of warming, and 75 to 80% of those emissions uh, that we need to eliminate very, very quickly will be eliminated through electrifying everything. So it is useful as a simplifying mnemonic for, you know, what we all have to do if we're going to keep the climate livable. Currently, your message is directed towards households in particular. How much of that picture is made up by the electricity used or the power used in in households at the moment, as opposed to, like, for commercial uses? Because it's sometimes said that the corporations have been very, very good at making us as consumers go, oh, it's up to you as a consumer to change your habits and do this and recycle more and do this rather and absolve themselves of responsibility. How much of this these these CO2 emissions are, are created by the kind of machines we use in our houses, Saul? So, 42% of the emissions in the US are decisions that are made around your kitchen table. So that's what you fuel your car with, that's where your electricity comes from, and it's whether you heat your home with natural gas or propane or LPG or whether you heat it with electricity. And if you include small businesses in the commercial sector, which includes school buildings and government buildings and things, that's about another 28%. So in fact, the majority of emissions in the US economy come from these decisions that people make around their kitchen tables or in, in their small businesses about the machines that they purchase. So that is, you know, the lion's share. Now, Australia is slightly different because we have such an enormous export sector that a lot of our energy goes into producing those exports. So that makes our economy numbers different. If you just look at the Australian domestic economy, meaning the energy that's being used here, not the energy that's being used to dig coal up here, to sell somewhere else to burn somewhere else it also is about it's over 40 percent and very similar to america in fact it's also about 25 percent or 28 percent for the commercial sector so again for the decisions that we can make that influence our domestic emissions it is 70 75 percent of australian emissions you co-founded a lobbying group in the united states called rewiring america and advised the biden administration was the administration and Congress genuinely interested in what you had to say as a result of your research here? The Biden team had a very strong climate team on day one of government. They were in favour of a carbon price, which is something that the world had failed to do for 30 years, and they were in favour of what's called a clean electrification standard, so cleaning up the electricity grid. And we advised them that actually that what you really need to think about is, yes, both of those things probably are good, that's ignoring all of these what they call demand-side machines, machines that are in people's homes, machines that are in people's businesses that we also have to decarbonise very, very urgently. And we were a little bit dismissed in the very early days of the administration, although we were listened to, and then the, the carbon price failed very quickly as a policy response and because they didn't have a supermajority in the Senate 
and so did the clean electrification standard. And so actually a huge amount of what ended up being a very incentive-driven piece of climate policy in the Inflation Reduction Act was really based around our hypothesis that you need to help every American household, every American small business buy these machines that can get us to zero emissions. You said you were you felt you were went into trying to change policy. You're a bit naive to begin with. What have you since learned about the way policy is made in the United States on these these matters? <laughs> the naivety was extraordinary. I really thought that because the word politician and the word policy both begin with the letters P O L I that politicians wrote policy. That's really not true. It's written by lobbyists and and interest groups and they do the majority of the drafting. Sure, that goes through the hands of the representatives. But you really, if you want to influence policy, you have to be prepared to show up, do your homework, do the math, do the numbers, and write the draft policy that that gets massaged into shape to become final policy. So, you know, it was me and a naive friend of mine, Alex Lasky, who started Rewiring America, and it was two of us in 2019 thinking we'd just go door knocking in Congress, but we ended up building a a policy shop and a lobbying shop that was using the best climate science and the best data tools to get the most emissions you could per dollar out of the US economy. The fossil fuel industries are behaving a lot like the tobacco industries did 20, 30 years ago at the moment and are in a fight for survival, refusing to change. Did you really know all about it when the fact that you were going up against a lot of these fossil fuel companies and their lobbyists in Washington? I thought we would, you know, get some resistance from the coal industry. There was very little from the coal industry, but we were outspent maybe $100 to one by the gas industry and the oil industry, but mostly the gas industry in the US. And they came after us with personal attacks and they came after us with armies of lobbyists and spurious arguments. And we were pretty successful uh, against them just by very patiently always having the rigorous numbers, always having references. They would come after us with assertions, we'd come back with numbers, and that was successful. I think I can recall reading Franklin D. Roosevelt and President Lyndon Johnson at some point having people approach him to enact all kinds of reform in the public good. And, and what both these presidents would say to these lobbyists quite privately is, you need to make me do this. I want, you, I want to do this, but I need you to force my hands politically. You need to put me in a situation politically where I have to act on this matter. Do you think that's how it works? I think there is a certain amount of that. I think what they really mean is you have to prove that there is public demand, that if you are going to be writing this policy, that it is, it is a thing that people want, it is a thing that is good for people. Make it popular. You've got to make it popular. Mm. So we... And both those presidents were successful in passing vast amounts of reform legislation, it needs to be said too. Yeah, Roosevelt really was extraordinary, both in his response to the Great Depression and in his response to World War II. Um, and I think probably the most impactful of any modern US president. So I actually read a lot of Roosevelt trying to think about how he achieved that. But we spent a lot of our time building coalitions with all of the other groups interested, whether it was in air quality aspects of electrification, whether it was in the pollution aspects, whether it was in the efficiency aspects, whether it was in the climate aspects, but build the broadest possible coalition and prove to government that the, the people wanted this. And so it was through that we had a lot of success and, in fact, in some respects, that's what we were trying to do with Electrify 2515 here in Australia, show the government for real now that there are communities in Australia that are desperate for rapid climate action because they understand the science and they want action now. And so I think I've learned a lot that this is something you must do. Uh, you, you've got to help the politicians understand that the people want this.
So your rallying cry now is electrify all the machines, electrify all our household machines and do it with renewable energy. Now, now you're back living in Australia with your young family. What kind of natural advantages do you see in Australia when it comes to making this shift? Well, we have low population density, so we've got not a lot of people on a huge amount of land. That land also happens to be terribly sunny, as we all know. It's written into our national poetry. We are the sunburnt country. We also have extraordinary wind resources. We have a mild climate. The mild climate makes it easier because that means it's easier for electric machines to heat our homes and the, those machines will be more efficient. And maybe the most significant thing is we had a curious set of political victories over the last 20 years that sort of went unnoticed that you now might describe as the Australian solar miracle. We figured out how to install rooftop solar on Australian homes extraordinarily cheaply about one quarter of the price to put solar on your roof in Australia that is in the US. Why have we been so successful at that? Oh, there's a guy called uh, Jeff Stapleton or Sharpleton who lives somewhere down the south coast who is a sort of early solar enthusiast and he created the training manuals and handbooks that taught all of us, you know, that certified Australian tradies to be able to do this job and do it without unnecessary government regulation. So that's it, something like that? Literally, I think... Tradie writes a handbook. Yeah. <laughs> Tradie writes a handbook. It's not very we, glamorous, is it? It's, we, um, we, but... we sort of slipped it under right. Howard's nose at the last minute in the negotiations over Kyoto. He didn't. No one ever took solar seriously, so it's like, what does it really matter if we have a little incentive for this rooftop solar stuff? That's not... That's, does that, you know, that's a toy. But it turned out to be becoming hugely significant and is now the cheapest en- retail energy that humans have ever got is Australian rooftop solar. I think Australians are funny. I think... We don't really like to be too far in front. Not really. We don't like to be radical pioneers in all sorts of things, but we really hate, I think even more, we hate to be left behind. How do you see us as a country when it comes to these things? I think you've just, you've unlocked something for me. I think we like to win by a nose. Yeah. We don't like to win by a furlong. (laughs) We like to win by a nose. We'd like everyone to actually think we're the underdog and we're losing and we're losing and we're losing. And then we want to just dash it at the finish line. Because actually, really, Australian households are, if, if I, I do climate work in the US, I do climate work in Europe, and um, nationally, federal federal policy, especially over the last two decades, we've been lagging the rest of the world. You know, our peer nations are Saudi Arabia and Russia on climate policy. But the Australian household is, is leading the world. And, you know, 33% of households now, I think, have rooftop solar and you can feel and sense the desire to electrify our vehicles um, because people know how cheap their rooftop solar is and people are electrifying their homes pretty quickly. I actually think the US just did this big, bold piece of climate legislation. They're going to throw a whole lot of money at it. But Australia is even better positioned to go faster on decarbonisation now. I think, you know, this isn't true for everyone in this country by any means, but I think by and large Australians are quietly proud of our lifestyle and we, we see it as a civilizational achievement. So do you think this vision you have for a, a cleaner energy future for Australia, it's like we, we, go, we keep living the way we do now but with better machines? Yeah, a couple of things I, I want to say there. I do largely in the book The Big Switch and in this essay talk about a substitution model. So I, I think it's very difficult to and we had 30 years of environmentalism saying you should have smaller things, they should be colder and less comfortable. And I don't think that ever won anyone over. And I think you can actually now say with a straight face that the climate solution is all the things that you currently have but electrified and run with solar and wind energy. And they, and you know, the good news is that they, they can save you money and that really is the, 
technological miracle of the last, I mean, the last five years that you can say that with a straight face. You say that one of the biggest stumbling blocks, if that's the word for it, or um, points of resistance you find when you've been talking around Australia about this is the idea that we have to replace the machines in our lives all at once. Instead, you're advocating we replace as they break. Tell me a bit about that. Oh, if I'll stand up in a town hall and I'll, I'll, I, well, I used to, and I'd give the electrify everything talk and people would, some people would go to a place of guilt. They're like, well, I haven't got the electric car. I don't have 20 grand or 30, 40, 50 grand to do that. Too expensive. The batteries are too expensive. The this is the that. And all of their things are true. And I didn't really want to put them in a, in a position of guilt. I wanted to put them in a position of empowerment. What I really was trying to say and actually dedicated a lot of this essay to is the idea that to hit our climate targets, we just need now to replace the machines at their end of life with the right machine. So you don't have to buy the electric car tomorrow, but when your eight-year-old Honda Civic gives up the ghost in five years, that's the right moment to replace it with an electric car. If we, as a nation and as a world, just use that principle of you know replacing everything at retirement with the clean electric thing, that's a recipe for about a somewhere between a one and a half and a 1.8 degree of warming world. EVs are a key technology, the shift from petrol fuel cars to EV cars. You know, in Europe recently, I'm, I'm really amazed to see how many power stations, power charging stations there are all over a city like Paris, for example, for people to charge their electric vehicles and how few there are here. Just how far back are we? How, how are we going there? Yeah, that? I've always wanted to say, like, if a place could exist in the world that was one-third Australia, one-third Norway, one-third Japan or South Korea, we'd be golden. So Norway has a policy of only electric vehicles after 2025. Uh, Australia has the rooftop solar miracle and Japan and South Korea have the electric heating heat pump miracle. If you could if you'd make those three places exist in one place, you'd have a zero-emission country that's doing a great job. Anyway, we, Australia, lagged the world for many, many years in having any vehicle emissions policy at all. So we were even worse than America. America was steadily trying to make their uh, car fleet have not only less emissions of NOxes and SOxes, but also more fuel efficiency and less emissions of CO2. We just have no fuel economy standards at all. So we were getting the world's worst vehicles down here. And because of that, there was less incentive to adopt electric vehicles. So it, it is fair to say we are five to 10 years behind America on electric vehicles. We, we aren't on the priority list of most of the electric vehicle manufacturers. But have, we have, could change that. Have governments in the past made it actually more difficult to try to stand in the way to adopt EVs? I'm not sure it was a conscious decision, but it has been the net effect of their laissez-faire approach to emissions. Or putting tariffs on EVs that were unnecessary. Oh, putting tariffs high. on EVs because they qualified as luxury vehicles. That was, that was definitely a negative. So EVs are a key part of this decision. Once we shift to powering our cars with Australian-made electricity. What did that then do to our balance of payments? So this is the crazy thing, and I'm going to make a larger political point. We laud our fossil fuel industries as the great saviours of Australia's economy. But we, we only export about 80 or $100 billion a year of coal and natural gas. We don't make a huge margin on that. Those are commodity materials. So we might make 20 or $30 billion net. We spend more than 30 or $40 billion a year buying foreign oil and you have to pay the full ticket for that. So really, net-net, it's probably a negative on the economy. Uh, they will claim it creates a lot of jobs, but really I think 80 or 85% of our fossil fuel export companies are foreign-owned, so it's not even really money that comes to us. So that's a disaster. If we were powering our 
vehicles on Australian-made sunshine instead of foreign oil, if you're driving the typical Australian car today on petrol at a dollar sixty to dollar eighty litre, that's twenty to twenty-five cents per kilometre. If you were driving a similar-sized electric vehicle powered off your rooftop solar, it would be one to two cents per kilometre, and you'd be saving, you know, a thousand more than a thousand dollars a year per car in your house. And that money stays in Australia too. That money stays in Australia. And really, maybe to, if, to return it to my road trip with my mum, we did a lot of the work in the US focused on the household. And in fact, we did a lot of analysis here through Rewiring Australia of the economics of the household clean energy transition. But the really extraordinary thing about it is the economic consequences of this for communities. Like if you're not spending $3,000 a year per house at the local petrol station. That's money that just disappears out of your community. But if that $3,000 stays in your community because you're using your solar cells and your neighbour's solar cells to power your electric car, then that $3,000 gets spent, a lot of it, 55% roughly, gets spent within your local LGA. And the net benefit of that is going to be more, more restaurants, more cafes, more classrooms, all of the things that we would like more of in our community. So you can, Nice things to have. Nice things to have. So you can really think about fossil fuels as this invisible tax that we've sort of voluntarily signed, our, signed up ourselves for on our communities. And the extraordinary opportunity in Australia is to make a huge amount of our energy within our communities from our rooftops and fundamentally change the economics of our communities. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Let's talk now a bit more about the machines inside the house. What are the key machines inside most households you want to see electrified? Again, just to step back a little, I think it's important to frame what I'm about to say in the the 50-year history of environmental messaging. So since the 1970s, the Earth Day happened early in 1970, and then shortly after that we had the energy crisis in the world, the Arab oil embargoes. And the solution to the energy crisis was more efficiency because America was missing 15% of its energy. If its cars were 15% more efficient, if its furnaces were 15% more efficient, then they would be, have no energy crisis. So the environmentalist movement latched onto this idea and it really is the origins of sort of the reduce, reuse, recycle theory of environmentalism. But in terms of our climate emissions, this just isn't true. The grand majority of the emissions in a household or a business are determined by choices, five or six choices that you make once every decade or so. So when you buy the car, what is the fuel that drives that car? When you buy a stovetop, what is the fuel? Is that a natural gas or is that electric? When you heat, buy the water heater, is that a gas water heater or is that an electric water heater? When you buy a space heater, is that a gas heater or is that an electric heater? And then whether or not you have solar and whether you have a battery. So you can sort of count that five or six or seven decisions And I think it's really interesting to think about those not only as infrastructure of your life, which they are, decisions you're making frequently, big big ticket items, but also national energy infrastructure. 
And I wanted to emphasize that because I think we've had paralysis as a populace on, you know, what are we doing on climate? What are we doing on climate? And then you latch on to, you know, recycling the plastic bags, which you know, those things are noble, but the things that really, really, really move the needle on our carbon emissions are these things inside your homes. So your cooktop, your water heater, your space heater, and your cars. So to start with the cooktop, the obvious solution there is to move from gas stovetops to induction stovetops. Now, we've got an induction stovetop came with the place we got we moved into. There's all sorts of benefits from an induction stovetop. One is it doesn't make the kitchen hot. That's one, that's one thing. This is just, this is just you know, putting the, the, the planet aside. It's, it has all those kinds of benefits. But there seems to be a fair bit of resistance to this, this idea. I'm surprised by how many people are quite immovable about this. Oh, you, you use the word resistance. This is interesting. It, it mm. quite literally is resistance against this because most people, when they think about electric cooking, they remember some campground in, in the 1980s where they were using a resistance electric cooktop. One like of those a coils. Coil. Yeah, yeah. And it would take about four hours to make pasta. The modern electric cooktops are faster than gas. So you boil water fast, twice as fast on an induction cooktop. Like you say, you don't, half of the energy, they use half the energy because they don't waste it, all the flame going up the sides. And it was really an extraordinary media campaign from gas in our childhood in the 80s. Um, you know, the clean blue flame, it was, yeah. it, it was the sexiest thing and they just that blue colour, you just can't get it out of your mind. And in fact, it was a very much a overt marketing ploy from the gas companies you don't have a re- an emotional relationship with your water heater. Most people, th- you know, well, I hope you don't have an emotional relationship with your water heater. Mine's quite attractive, but let's not go there. Um, and you don't really have an emotional relationship with the, your space heaters, but people do care about cooking because cooking is cultural. And the gas companies knew this, so they very, very heavily promoted gas cooking because they knew once they had that gas line into your house for your cooktop, they could also sell you gas for heating your home and gas for heating your water heater. So... That's why we were very we were oversold this, if you like. But the reality now is the induction is just superior. Yeah, and there are health benefits to it as well. Absolutely, health benefits. The the not not only for your children, but actually, there's even studies about the health impacts on your pets of burning natural gas within your home. The one of the leading causes of respiratory illness. Think of the kittens. <laughs> Think of the kittens. Do it for the kittens. There's your new slogan, right? 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 Love there. it. Electrify everything. For yeah. The- I'm seeing increasing advocacy when it comes to, you know, people need to install new air air con systems. People are talking about things called a heat pump. What is that? Can you explain a bit about that? Well, your original experience with a heat pump is actually your refrigerator. And a heat pump converts the energy in air and splits it off into the cold portion and the hot portion. And in a refrigerator, that means it pumps extra hot air out into your living room while pumping cold air inside your refrigerator. But the same thing works for air conditioning systems, so they they are heat pumps. Um, some of them are reversible, what, which means they can not only cool air, but they can also heat air. And they're extraordinarily efficient. So, in fact, when you're powering an electric heat pump, it can move three or four times more heat than a natural gas heater for one unit of energy input. So they are extremely efficient, and they also happen to be a pathway to zero emission heating of the air in our homes and it also you can have a heat pump heat your water. They are a little more expensive than the natural gas devices, but you save so much money on these appliances. If you now look at any of these appliances in Australia, over their 10-year lifetime, they will save money for the household. So they are a little bit more expensive up front, as is the electric vehicles. That, in fact, is the logic behind the incentives of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. As a result of that act, 
every one of the 110 million households qualifies for around $14,000 of incentives to help pay for that, what they call the green premium, that slightly higher price of the heat pump over the natural gas or the electric vehicle over the petrol vehicle. And do they take the form of rebates or of low-interest loans when it comes to giving people the resources to, to purchase these things? Uh, some of it will come th- as low-interest loans, but they're still figuring out that program. The majority of it, for better or worse, is actually done through the tax uh, system in the US. That means it's a little bit regressive, so you have to be able to afford to pay taxes to qualify for a lot of the incentives. So it doesn't hit quite as many of the lower middle-income households that would benefit even more from it than you would like. Nevertheless, it's a lot of incentives in terms of rebates, some direct subsidies, but a huge number of tax incentives. What are you seeing coming from our federal government in terms of making these things cheaper to buy? Federal government isn't there yet, and the federal government, honestly, is um, still fighting the last war. The culture war of the last couple of decades around fossil fuels was, oh, you know, it's all about our exports, and what are we going to do if we're not exporting coal and gas, and we're going to lose all this money, and we've got everything to lose, lose, lose. And a little bit, that's why a huge amount of the government and the conversation about this is, well, we've got to make green hydrogen because in a very naive way, we just, we'd like to stuff a different, different gas in a boat and earn money from it. But making that green hydrogen isn't going to decarbonise your car and isn't going to decarbonise your home or any, anything really in the Australian economy except maybe steel, which is only a very small fraction of our emissions. So we've been too focused on that and not focused enough on the household, which is the majority of our domestic emissions over 40%, 70% if we include small businesses. So we are a long way behind the thinking and behind the ball that the US was in terms of how do we decarbonise. And hopefully we can turn that around. I think we'll see a little bit in this budget, but hopefully over the course of the next few years, we will really make front and centre these machines because quite literally green hydrogen isn't even ready to go as a technology yet, whereas these are things you can do and buy today that the government could help you buy and make easier and cheaper for you that would eliminate emissions immediately, eliminate money that we have to spend buying oil, and it would lower the cost of living. You say in your quarterly essay that we need to accept that it won't be enough to be 100% renewable and we need to be 150% renewable. Tell me what you mean by that. This is actually really fun and cute and true as a headline. So the first thing you should say is like, we aren't 100% fossil right now. We are more than 150%. So at any given moment, about a third of the coal plants aren't running because they're down for maintenance because we underinvest in maintaining them. So to have a reliable energy supply of anything, you need to have more than you need in case something's broken. And so this has always been the criticism of wind or solar. Well, what about when the sun doesn't shine? What about when the wind doesn't blow? It turns out for Australia, if we're getting 50% of our energy from solar and 50% of our energy from wind and we had... 12 hours of storage in batteries, then 150% renewable supply would answer forever the question, what about baseload power? It is then baseload power. You know, this is how you guarantee resilience is you have more than you need, which should be obvious because that's what we already do. Would there just be solar and wind in the mix or can you see a role for nuclear power? We could do nuclear power. I'm not against nuclear power. I think pragmatically in Asia and Europe, you have to do nuclear power, but I don't think Australia will do nuclear power on the time frame that's relevant to get the emissions reduction we need for uh, climate. America has 104 nuclear reactors. They've only installed one in the last 40 years because they could only get one approved and through, and it produces very expensive electricity. The output of nuclear power plant is more expensive than Australian rooftop solar. So if we aim for 150%, to have that excess capacity in case the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, as you say. A lot of the time we're going to have a lot of excess energy here. 
What do we do with all this energy? So what do you propose? Well, that's then when it's a good idea to make hydrogen um, or a good idea to do desalination or a good idea to use that very low-cost excess energy to dump that into the heat to make steel or into the heat to make aluminium, aluminium. for export. Mm. And really, if we just... You know, if we merely doubled or tripled the amount of steel that we processed domestically, instead of shipping off iron ore, red dirt, we actually made steel here again like we used to, that would dwarf our export industries in fossil fuels. So green metals really is an extraordinary opportunity for Australia because we are one of the few countries in the world that will easily make... In fact, we, we can afford to make not just 150%, 2 3 400%, and then we should be pushing that into green metals to help the world transition. One thing that people feel very, very um, acutely is the size of their power bill. It's always raised in every state and federal election. What would adopting rooftop solar and all this renewable energy do to price stability in the market for energy in Australia? Your average price of retail electricity in Australia is about 28 cents. Like I said before, finance rooftop solar is four or five cents. If we cleaned up the rules of the electricity grid so that if you had excess solar on your rooftop, you could send it over to charge my car. I'd pay you five or six cents for that and then I might be paying 10 or 15 cents. So we're not losing the poles and wires here. We're still sending electricity to and from each other? Absolutely. The benefits of being connected with electrification are extraordinary. And the miracle of the wires that literally bind every single Australian to each other are these shared, this shared electricity grid. And I found we think of it as a shared asset that we can use to share our electricity and our storage with each other. That's how we create the lowest cost energy system for Australia. And most people, most pundits believe that 2026 or so, the electric vehicle will be the same price in the showroom as the petrol vehicle. The cost of heat pumps are still falling. The cost of solar is still falling. The cost of batteries is falling extraordinarily quickly. By about 2030, you could imagine every Australian household that's currently spending between five and $7,000 a year on energy would be spending between two and $3,000 a year on energy. So we have an extraordinary opportunity that could save us all a lot of money and be this origin of, of a new sort of economic renewal for Australia. In regional Australia, it's often thought in the cities that they're resistant to this change, and maybe that's true, I don't know, but what were you seeing when you were travelling around Australia in your EV with your mum in regional Australia, the kind of initiatives that are springing up in rural and regional communities in Australia? Well, the most extraordinary experience was I ended up riding on the coattails of Helen Haynes, member for Indi in rural Victoria. And a lot of the communities are in rural Victoria are realising that this solar energy they have in abundance and that it is much, much cheaper. And there's projects like Hepburn Wind Power, which has realised that building your own community-owned wind farm because you have enough space in rural Australia involves the whole community and gives them all much cheaper energy. So this revolution is quietly happening in rural Australia and it, and it is politically mind-bending because, you know, I think traditionally because of the culture war that sort of placed the gnats against the inner-city Liberals was, oh, that solar will never work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is if you live in a city apartment, you're not going to be able to put enough solar on your roof to power your cars. You're going to need that solar to go out in the regions. If you live out in the regions it's easy to put enough solar on your roof to charge all your cars and all your toys and your jet ski too, as well as sell some of that electricity to those cafe-sloping liberals in the city. <laughs> so the regions just stand to win, 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 win. So you didn't feel the need to preach? It seems like they were ahead of the curve in some places. Oh, you know, in a lot of places in Australia, they are ahead of the curve. But they, you know, they need a little bit more help in understanding how we 
put it all together and honestly what they need is regulatory help making sure that when they generate electricity they're treated fairly and equally compared to the coal-fired station down the road. So we need to fight for that. It seems like there's not so much a country versus city divide on this, but it may be a generational divide. Tell me about the winery you visited on this trip and what you saw going on there. Well, I think it is definitely generational. I drove with my mum from Sydney to Wollongong, Wollongong to Canberra, Canberra to Albury-Wodonga, from there over to Adelaide, from there back to Melbourne, from there to Hobart, and then back up the East Coast. So it's a lot of kilometres in Australia, and there actually were enough vehicle charges everywhere that we didn't really have any challenge. We had about 400 kilometres of range, so you know, by the time your ass was tired, <laughs> you'd find that you wanted to stop for half an hour to charge the car anyway. But we, only, we had one problem charging, which was somewhere just south of Adelaide. One of the charges we showed up to was in a caravan park, and it was a slow one, and it was broken. And we looked on the map and we found that there might be another charger at a winery up the street. So we arrived at the winery just as it was closing or closed and it had an EV charger that was, we thought, broken out the front. So I'm standing there swearing at this broken electric vehicle charger and this young well, guy, young guy, he's about my age. I don't know if I'm young anymore. Anyway, he's like, oh, just replace that one. I got a fast charger out the back. It's nice. And he wanted to have a look at the Tesla we had. We had a fancy red Tesla. And he said, I'll give you a charge if you give me a drive. So we, I said yes. And, You're um, in no position to refuse really no, in that no, moment, were you? No, not no, at all. No. But then he showed me the most extraordinary thing. He just installed a container full of batteries. He showed me the, I don't know, about 100 kilowatts of solar generation. He was running the entire winery and a brewery as well off solar and off the battery. And he installed the fast charger and he was just trying to determine with all the money he was saving which electric vehicle he was going to buy, which is why he wanted to thrash out Tesla for a minute. Super guy, invited us in for a glass of wine and a beer, as you do while you're waiting for the car to charge. And then we were talking about the the book tour I was on with him and he was relaying his experience. And then his dad walks in and proceeded to sort of embarrass his son a little in front of us with his doubts and concerns about the climate change stuff. That's not real. What's this hippie solar stuff you're doing, son? Why would you bother doing that? And the son is patiently saying, Dad, it's like I saved you 30-odd thousand dollars last year on energy. But there was an extraordinary generational divide and the son was doing it because economically it made complete sense. It meant they had robust energy and the father still couldn't quite reconcile that with what he'd heard on Talkback Radio. So he wasn't happy just to take the money. And, <laughs> no. and and just keep quiet. He had to you give his son a hard time, did he? You would just get, you know, it's like, oh, it was a terrible, it was a terrible thing to watch. This this guy was the son was just this fabulous human doing the right thing, and then he you had to watch him listen to his dad say, oh man, I don't know about that climate change. It's not can't, can't be real. And he's making tens of thousands of dollars. And he's off. saving his dad tens of thousands right. of dollars a year. And I was like, oh, geez, I hope you give the farm to this kid and not, not divide it amongst the three kids. Ultimately, you're talking about a future where fossil fuel industries will become extinct. You know, we, you're not meant to say this out loud in Australia still, you know, and it was clear, unequivocally clear with the IPCC, we can permit no more gas or oil projects anywhere on earth if we're going to hit a target under two degrees, especially under one and a half degrees. Yet the Biden administration actually approved an oil field last week and the Australian Labor Party says, we believe in climate science and we believe in science-based targets and then they've been approving gas projects. We can't do that anymore. And it's why the gas industry is spending so much in a lobbying sense because for them it's existential. Rather than looking at themselves as an energy company that could transition like the rest of us into this new energy economy and use their capital balances 
to transition, they are digging in their heels and saying, we refuse to change our business model. It's got to be gas. It's going to be gas, gas, gas. And they're continuing the denial. How about your local region? I mentioned before you and other local concerned citizens in around the Wollongong area have started up Electrify 2515 around your postcode. Well, what's interesting about 2515 is we're in the holiday brochures, we're called the coal coast. Literally, right. Australia's coal industry began. You've got you Port know. Kembla around there, don't you? Yeah. You've got Port Kembla down the street. If you swim at my local beach and you look at the rocks, there's a black stripe horizontally in the rocks, and that's the coal sedimentation layer. Like walking behind my house when we first moved there, my wife bent down and picked up a rock. She said, this is a pretty black rock. What's this? I'm like, that's coal. <laughs> and, you know, having had her whole life powered by coal, she didn't realise that Australia was actually just made out of it. <laughs> So I like to actually think that, you know, we were first in the world, first in Australia as the coal coast, but now we're hopefully first in Australia as the electrification coast. And, you know, coal, actually majority of it is used to generate electricity. So it's sort of a, you know, a natural progression for us, if you like. So the idea is you're going to move forward with this whole area and persuade people in the area to shift from their fossil fuel powered machines to go from petrol cars to EVs, to go from gas powered heaters and air conditioners to electric ones and to move from gas-powered stovetops to induction stoves and all these other devices to shift to electric machines. Who do you see paying for this? I mean, there is a cost threshold there. We don't have the economic incentives. Are you raising money to enable this or are you just encouraging people to make the change out of their own pocket? Well, I'm actually going to tie this back to your Roosevelt quote earlier in the show. How do you prove to me that this is winning politics for me? The real origin of, of wanting to do Electrify 2515 was to prove to the Australian government, that this is something that the Australian people want. So within our postcode 2515, there's about 4,000 households and about half of them have now signed up to participate, wanting to be in on this thing that's going to electrify our homes, eliminate our emissions and save money. So you're offering the how-to, is that it? We're offering the how-to and then also because there's still a little bit of technological glue to put all this together, we're, we're also working on piloting a few of the remaining technologies to make it all work and do that in a way where we can prove the economics out and, and turn it into a larger program to roll out nationwide. You know, the ambition is not to begin and end with 2515, but it's to help decarbonise and electrify 2,600 Australian postcodes. Right, so you're, and you're, you want your postcode to be the model, uh, we a want, model. We want it to be a model. A model to yeah. go forward with. And then what I really want to do is, like you were saying, well, this is going to cost. A little bit right now in, in 2023, if you rush out to buy all the electric goodies, you are paying a little bit more, that green premium, the extra $15,000 for electric vehicle. But like I said earlier, we know the, the electric cars are going to be cheaper or about the same price in 2026. And we have to replace every machine as it retires with an electric machine if we want to hit our climate target. We also know this transition, this energy transition is the substitution of finance for fuels. So the climate bill in the US is called the Inflation Reduction Act. Why is it called that? And it's because fossil fuels have increased in price at the rate of inflation. In fact, they define inflation through the consumer price index for the last 30 or 40 years. But if you today went out and bought an electric vehicle and you bought solar and you bought a heat pump and you bought the electric kitchen, you're financing all of those things because they're capital purchases. And because they're financing, you have fixed costs for the next 20 years. So your price of energy doesn't go up once you've done all this electrification, you're powering it with your renewables. This is the price stability you were mentioning. It's literally yeah. anti-inflationary. So the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the ways to in, in, <laughs> reduce inflation is to give price stability into the future by doing you know, the substitution of finance for fossil fuels. 
So that's the other problem with the narrative in Australia, and you not to accuse you, but all the media makes the same mistake. In fact, most people introduce, oh, it's going to cost us this energy transition. And the answer is yes, it will cost us more in the first year, but then we're saving money every year after that. And we now know that we've passed the point that if the country, and you heard me use the word infrastructure earlier in the show, if the country thought about Australian households and Australian small businesses as national energy infrastructure, and it should because the majority of the batteries in the country in the future will be our 20 million vehicles, the majority of the solar generation will be on our rooftops of our homes and businesses, that's infrastructure. If we invested in that infrastructure with a 10 or 20 year outlook, we would be saving 30 odd 40 odd billion dollars a year through this electrification compared to what we're doing today so would the solution in this case would be low interest loans something like a hex scheme like that's how we fund higher education these days low interest loans over the long term yeah absolutely hex is a really and i've recently met one of the architects of hex a lovely lovely man called bruce chapman and it's a very novel set of financing tools that is, it's called income contingent loan. So the idea was you want to do a social good, in this case, educate people. You don't want to unnecessarily burden them in the future if you don't have to. And so you only pay back the hex once your income hits a certain level. Hits a certain level. So you get the benefit of the education, then the benefit kicks in with higher income, then you pay back the loan. I'm not saying this is exactly the mechanism we're doing for electrification, but we should investigate ideas like this because for most Australians, the problem is the upfront cost. It's the access to the capital. It's the access to the credit to buy that electric vehicle. Um, Most of us buy used vehicles largely for this reason. But if we could get access to the finance to buy the electric vehicle, we would be saving money driving it every kilometre. And over the lifetime of that vehicle, it's a slam dunk that the household saves money in Australia benefits because we're not buying foreign oil. So we need to think big as a country. And in fact, if we had that type of legislation, that would be superior legislation of the Inflation Reduction Act. As we mentioned earlier, Inflation Reduction Act is a bit regressive because not all the poorest households in America are going to benefit from it. If Australia really wanted to lead the world, we would design something like a HEX program where the federal government invests in Australian households and Australian businesses as though they are energy infrastructure because they're energy infrastructure and we save all of that money over the next few decades and we bring the whole world forward 10 years on climate action. And maybe instead of calling it HEX, we could call it something like Tradie Bonanza, perhaps something like that? It is absolutely a, a Tradie Bonanza. It's a snappy, I was gonna, snappy slogan, isn't it? I was going to call it HEX. 2.0, which right. is terrible because yeah. it's home electrification contribution schemes. Yeah. Um, but no, trade even answer. Everyone thinks that it's going to be the nerds and mm. that make all the money in this energy transition. It's not. It's the tradies. Great to speak with you, Saul. Thank you very much. Thanks, Richard. It was a lovely conversation. Saul Griffith is the author of the most recent quarterly essay, which is called The Wires That Bind. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.